it's time for First Voices Radio with Tilkison Ghost Horse. Please stay tuned. Land, air, and water. It's nature's law. First Voices Radio brings to you the basics of how not to violate the law and presents the voices of people experiencing the consequences of war against Mother Earth. We bring the awareness of a different paradigm to the airwaves as we shed the same old systematic paradigm that is killing Mother Earth. You can hear the perspective of indigenous peoples throughout the world and how they live with the law, land, air, and water. The voices of the original peoples, our guests are from every continent on earth, endangered, unheard, and forbidden from being heard on mainstream and the neoliberal left airwaves, whether it is alternative or progressive radio. What makes you such a threat? We choose the right to be who we are. We know the difference between the reality of freedom and the illusion of freedom. There's a way to live with Earth and a way not to live with Earth. We choose the way of Earth. It's about power. Chasha. Betu washtelo oyate do kahe wichake imachia pelo naha iuha chante washte na pechu zapielo le unki pike he washtelo oyate hona umpi ohola oskate wichoni. Welcome, my relatives. I shake your hands with good feelings in my heart. And the whole world is a beautiful day, and it's, it's uh, good for all of us to be here and let the people hear your voice respectfully and celebrate life. In addition to reality, this is First Voices Radio, and I send you greetings. And strength on the east gate of Turtle Island where the sun and the water touch the earth at once. And I want to thank you for your generosity, for being there and for being here today. You know who you are. Without you, we cannot continue. And my name is Teokson Ghost Horse. I'm your host for First Voices Radio. Today, we're going to be talking about something that you may or may not know about cosmology. And this is very important, folks. It's not going to have to deal with the peace and war and the sensationalism of it or anything else. It has to do with our real, the real health that's been here long before uh, the Western world showed up in the Western world. Let's put it that way. The Western mind showed up in the Western world. A little juxtaposition there going on with, with the types of words that I'm going to be using, but and glad to be back here. I have to get used to speaking English again and in that way of understanding it as, as uh Living in New York and, and the East Coast here, I want to understand 
for myself that who I am as a, as a Native person, not a Native American, but a Native person, an Indigenous and original people's person here uh, in the East Coast. And understanding the languages and cosmologies is a little different. Um, and so if you would excuse me for maybe not saying an English word correctly or even a thought and a concept that we understand it in the hierarchical concepts that we understand it in in this language and i'm going to do my best here today to offer you something that i think is worthwhile sit down and study we'll be interviewing um anthony della flora who is uh, been for the past three decades uh has encompassed everything from reporting as a daily newspaper reporting for a daily newspaper to uh running a film festival and producing television and films and screenwriting and as a reporter, editor, and columnist for the Albuquerque Journal for 23 years, Della Flora covered a variety of beats from crime to the arts. And in 1997, he founded the production company Taos Communications Empire with James Lujan of Taos Pueblo. And the company produced several full-length documentaries, including High Strange News, New Mexico, and The Language of Spirituality. And Della Flora also produced programming for KNME TV KNME-TV, the PBS affiliate in uh, Albuquerque, including the documentary Sleeping Monsters, Sacred Fires, Volcanoes of New Mexico. And in 2000, he launched the Duke City Shootout Film Fest, Filmmaking Festival from 2000 and 2008. Also served as co-director, co-executive producer for the 65 short film shot during the annual event. He resides in Albuquerque, New Mexico for the past 35 years. And we'll be talking to Anthony down the road and I'm going to pose some some suggestions and questions to you about the myth of a Western superiority. Where back in the early 20th century, at the dawn of modern physics, pioneering scientists such as Niels Bohr and Max Planck and Werner Heisenberg were making discoveries that would overturn everything we thought we knew about the way the world worked as they developed what would come to be known as quantum physics. The field continues to intrigue, mystify, and in many instances defy explanations to this day for, for some people, that is. Native Americans had developed sophisticated concepts of how the world worked centuries before the breakthroughs of Western physicists. What they also had that Western physicists didn't were verbal-based languages suitable for describing the dynamic interactions within the world of quantum physics and the nature of reality. And it wasn't too far into the 20th century that Heisenberg lamented the limitations of noun-heavy Western languages in explaining physics. And soon math was the only language that physicists could speak in, and even that had its biases. The Language of Spirituality, a fascinating documentary film that emerges out of an ongoing dialogue between Western scientists and Native American elders, and it began in, 19, in 1992 when Blackfoot elder Leroy Littlebear approached physicist David Bohm exactly 500 years after Columbus has set foot on this continent. And it represents the first time in a post-colonial era where indigenous ways of knowing and leading-edge science meet on truly equal footing. Let me say that again. The Native American languages represent the first time in a post-colonial era where indigenous ways of knowing and leading and leading edge science meet on truly equal footing. Little known parallels between indigenous worldviews and quantum theory, such as a recognition that everything that exists vibrates and that 
quote, process and relationship, unquote, underlie reality rather than discrete building blocks of things. Native elders Little Bear and Joseph Rael, along with physicist Fred Allen Wolf, and physicist, phys, physicist author F. David Peet, linguist Dan Muhawk Alford, and others, to Alford, who was invited by his mentor, Sakej Youngblood Henderson, to participate in the dialogue and was the driving force in helping set up annual dialogues now run by Seed Graduate Institute in Albuquerque, uh, New Mexico. And among the themes of explores the limits of Indo-European languages such as English, which depend heavily on nouns to comprehend reality and by definition stop movement and juxtaposes this with certain native languages which see the world as a fluid place of dynamic interaction and speakers can go all day long without the uttering of a single noun. Alford describes himself as standing at the lonely crossroads of quantum theory, Native America, consciousness, and linguistics. And we heard all those. We've heard about the quantum theory. But we, we, we shy away from that because our minds are, are been subjected to thinking that we are not intelligent enough to say this. But think about a people who are subjected and shelved as um, not educated in the American, the Western way, and science and elitism and all these things that, that make way for hierarchical, hierarchical, rational minds, that Native Americans who still speak their language, and I, I say this quite often, a lot of our languages in, in, in the Western Hemisphere cannot be translated truly, and this is, this is not true about other languages, Truly, because they are also, those other languages are also subjective and noun-filled. But when you come to a native America, you look at the languages that you can talk all day long without uttering a single noun. Because it has to do with consciousness and linguistics. The theories of the much maligned linguist, Benjamin Worf and does an excellent job defending Worf against the straw that man arguments that limited his work to the so-called hypotheses of Worf's appear. And uh, we'll be talking more about that. It's not to confuse you anymore. He does this by positioning Worf's linguists, linguistics in the context of emerging quantum theory in the 20th century. So we are introducing the possibility that native languages and native consciousness may provide a more suitable window for understanding ramifications of leading-edge science. Science itself has been limited by its blind spot that mostly failed to recognize the similarity in logic between the grammar of Indo-European languages and the structure of Western science formulations. And David Bohm was an exception in that he painfully understood this limitation and even tried to create a language composed exclusively of verbs, which he called real mode. A Rio mode, or I think it's R H E O M O D E, Rio mode, and from which is from the Greek Rio to flow. At the time, Bohm was attempting to create the Rio mode. He was probably unaware of the already existing native languages, which already largely accomplished what he was trying to do. So, if the languages are there and they are talking in quantum physics, and and, and those of you who have listened to First Voices Radio understand that those languages that I start out with every time are talking in quantum physics encoded language. Now, think about where your mind is going with what I just said. And, and then we're going to present this so that you begin to understand. 
called the language of spirituality. And we'll come back to you, and we're going to have on, on the line our friend Anthony Della Flora and this voice that you're hearing, Teokas and Ghost Tours, the language of spirituality. In 1992, the Vetzler Institute of Kalamazoo, Michigan, hosted a science dialogue between Westerners and Native peoples. Among those attending were indigenous scholars and elders, linguists, and quantum physics, including David Bohm, a, co- a colleague of Albert Einstein. Bohm was considered one of the most brilliant and controversial physicists of the 20th century. He died few, a few months after the gathering, but the re- event spawned a continuing series of dialogues that have been Uh, held in in Alberta, Canada, Albuquerque, New Mexico. The dialogues explore the similarities between English languages, uh, native languages, physics, physics, and uh, linguistics, and uh, the way we perceive the world, although, although we have marked it differently in the Western world. And now, decades later, we are understanding the invisible world in quantum physics in the native languages of the Western Hemisphere. And the mysteries of these unseen realms are now present, the language of spirituality. The way you speak has something to do with the way you think and vice versa. That there is a uh, determining influence, a shaping influence on our speech that comes from our thought. And our thoughts are also subtly shaped by the forms of language which we're going to speak them in. I think that's where all of this starts at the very earliest when when a child is on our knee and a ball's bouncing across and in front of us and we would say in English, look, a ball, more likely than not. Whereas my feeling is that what would come out of an Indian's mouth is more like, look, bouncing. So paying attention to the dynamic quality of what's going on, not static objects. You know. one, of the, one of the things that has uh, intrigued me for quite a while, after I started really understanding more what was going on in quantum physics by, by understanding Native America more, I started noticing then how linguistic physics has actually become during this century and certain uh, instances that I pointed to where there were some very interesting linguistic insights going on. So for instance, um, Heisenberg did something, uh, said something at the near the beginning of the century that I've called Heisenberg's Lament. And it's one of the most plaintive things in the world. He said, we've reached the limits of our language. We've reached the limits of our language. And I had to know what he meant by that. So I started going further and he says, well, we want to describe the inner structure of an atom but we can't do that in ordinary language. So then I started wondering, well, what does he mean by ordinary language? You mean Western languages? 
down-oriented? Do Native American languages fall under the label ordinary language? Well, I had to assume that Heisenberg um, didn't know anything about Native American languages. And once I assumed that, I realized that the door was still open, that maybe these Native languages uh, might be able to play an interesting role. The problem, the problem as we try to express uh, today is the science thinking is very much based on math and the reasoning process. Okay, I know the scientists will will uh, deny this, but being observers on the outside, I can see what's going on. The scientific, the the mathematical logic is very similar to the English logic. In English, it's polarizations like good and bad, saint, sinner, day, night, black, white. See? One of the claims that Chomskyans and others have been making for a long time is that there is such a thing as universal human logic. And I don't think so. I think Native American languages just shoot that right in the head. That, that this indicates that there is no universal human logic at all. That logic, as well as, as science and philosophy, grow out of the grammar of the language. That all of the assumptions that they're going to be based on are already there in the grammar. To, to hear uh, Leon speak about uh, the Inapiho way of language, what, how the symbols of, of la and, and ka and be, and all these different sounds, whether, how the one and the two and the three and the four, how they all form from the sacred language of the, of the Navajo people, that was very, that opened up my eyes to, uh, this must have been the way tribal peoples all over the universe began to first speak using the sacred language form. And how uh, the English language and the languages which have been developed in our the culture of, of so-called science, which is primarily development from the, uh, the the Western projective language structure, not the sacred language structure, but the language structure in which I don't care what the sound is, I say that sound stands for that, and that's what it is. So if I say cat, it's cat. If I say chat in French, it's del cat. Okay. If I say katza of Deutsch, it's del cat. It doesn't matter what it is, what the sound is. Whatever it is, it denotes cat. There's no such thing in sacred language systems. Sacred sounds have meanings themselves. What mathematical languages are, are languages that have been stripped of most of the culture, but they're still not fully autonomous. And that was shown to me by a buddy of mine in Missouri named Andy Hilgardner. And that is the language of spirituality, your way. And you and uh, others who are looking to find another way to express yourselves can also come and understand that maybe the native language has that expression and that way of thinking that is much different and expandable beyond the language that I'm speaking to you in now. 
and uh, the, the evolutions that we are looking for is is in this these languages and and because we have we put it aside and we put it out of sight out of mind with native people with Indians with original peoples or whatever comfortable name that it's being called to us now is that um, these languages contain maybe that expandable possibility that that this society needs. And I say that, but I'm not saying that it is the answer. I am only offering to you that it's a suggestion. It's a possibility. Earlier in the program, we did introduce Anthony Delaflora, who's a producer of this fascinating and these minds that are coming together. And just from, from the first very statement to the very last, it makes you want more. And that's going to be one of my questions to Anthony Delaflora. Why don't we have more? First of all, I want to just uh, welcome Anthony Delaflora from New Mexico. Thank you for joining us this morning, Anthony. Thank you for having me. This is very exciting. I, um, I was just listening to the feed before, and it was like, I, I realized that was the first time I've heard it on the radio. It was pretty cool. And it's getting out to a lot of people, getting, you know, getting around the world. Anthony, we spoke a little bit yesterday about why you got interested in this, being from where you are in your background. And you told me that you were hearing this, but no one was uh, actually videotaping it or recording it. And you decided to pick it up from the, where you were involved after the beginning of this conference and up, uh, the whole ideas about quantum physics and modern science and, and Native American languages, uh, speaking the same language, so to speak, between peoples. And it's surprising that the thought processes and the ones that mathematicians or physicists use or alongside each other, which, which it's hard, to, even in the Western mind, to think Native Americans are speaking the same language as quantum physics, as physicists are speaking, the mathematicians. Wait a minute, that, that's impossible. Can you take it from there, Anthony? Well, sure. Dan Moonhawk Alford, who was the first person here in speaking, was uh, my original contact with this. Of course, I've been living out here in New Mexico for 35 years, and this is sort of Indian country. We've got 20-something Pueblos still existing around here and everything. And, and, and I'd, heard, I'd heard things about how the languages were structurally different, but I never really got to explore that very much. And um, Dan came out from California one time to speak at a place called the Sea Graduate Institute here in Albuquerque, New Mexico. And his presentation was titled, God is Not a Noun in Native America. And uh, my friend who ran seats said, you got to come and listen to this guy. This is really important stuff. And so I did, and he, he basically introduced me to this concept of a verb-based language and uh, with some examples. And I can't think of all of them, but I know that one term for, that he said he used for great spirit or whatever was called uh, dwells above, which, of course, doesn't contain a noun in it. <laughs> and from that starting point, he sort of explained how these verb-based languages are structured. And anyway, I, I, I became friends with Dan, and it, I saw him speak on another similar subject once. And he, um, I told him I was very interested in pursuing this. I thought, you know, there was a great story to be told here. And he invited me to um, one of these conferences between elders and um, physicists and stuff that would happen to be, I believe it was 1998, that was being held in Banff, Alberta, Canada. And uh, at, that, at that point, it was only, you could only get into this by invitation. So I was very honored that Dan um, 
invited me to this. The only problem was it was 1,700 miles away from Albuquerque. So, <laughs> fortunately, <laughs> I had a good friend, and I was still working at the newspaper, so I didn't have a lot of time off. But fortunately, I had a friend who loved to drive. So, in, in the space of a week uh, or six days, I think, we drove to Banff and um, attended a two and a half day conference and got back to Albuquerque in time for me to go to work again. It was, it was quite, a, quite a trip. But the, the main thing was I, I got to be at one of these conferences and meet uh, Leeway, Little Bear, and Sagesh Henderson and some of the other people who've been involved in this, in this dialogue from the very beginning, and I was just entranced by it. And I, uh, I wasn't able to uh, really... Well, when I went up, I knew I wasn't going to be able to record anything or videotape anything, but it was more just to get to meet the folks involved, see how they ran the dialogues, get kind of a flavor for the whole thing, and it proved very valuable. So by the time I got back to Albuquerque and, uh, you know, I found out that um, my friend at the Graduate Institute was going to try to bring the conference to Albuquerque because they didn't know if they were going to have funding to do it in Canada anymore. They didn't know how it was going to go out. So they got it. You know, the very next year, by the Albuquerque, and I said, you know, I love your permission to go in and start doing a piece about this and interviewing these people because it's great stuff. So that's kind of how it all got started. The uh, the question again after the, the groundbreaking work that you're that you've been paying attention to by Benjamin Wharf and the native and Western languages, the main differences between these languages, and and uh, to think about the biases or non-biases appear um, because I'm thinking in the Western right now because of where I'm at and speaking a language, that I tend to think about Native Americans as outside, out of sight, out of mind, and therefore they're not, they don't matter. Even what their language is, their culture, or anything, it doesn't matter. We have them on in their category. We have them on a shelf where they can be controlled. But now, after reading the Lakota language as much as I do, is that there is an... an, an bias inherent in, in this language of English about how we look at Native people. So we tend to, to do what I just said before, is, is is get them out of the way so we can get on with trying to figure out our, our own way of, of dealing scientifically with life um, and applying that to almost everything, including our languages. And that concludes our first half of the interview with Anthony De La Flora. Discussion really right here on First Voices Radio. I'm Teokas and Ghost Horse. For those of you who are interested in hearing more of Language of Spirituality, come back for the second half of First Voices Radio in a few minutes.
And welcome back to First Voices Radio, second half, and our discussion about language of spirituality with Anthony De La Flora. First, the name of that song by a group out of Greenland. The name of the album is U-U-M-M-A-N-N-A-R-M-I-U-A-Q-Q-A-T, B-O-R-N-E-H-J-E-M. 2023, the name of the song is Avanaani, A-V-A-N-N-A-A-N-I. Thank you for joining us, and here's the second half of the discussion on language of spirituality. There's, um, yeah, I think something that I try to express in the in the movie is really to give people um, uh, sort of an easy way to, to begin to understand it. And I think I think Dan um, summed it up in his, his very first quote. There, he, you know, you watch the ball, and he said, "Westerners see a ball." And um, Native Americans would tend to see the bounce, the action of the bouncing. And to me, it doesn't sound like much, but to me, that is a that is a profound difference mm-hmm. in in the way we look at the world. And are we seeing the action? Are we are we focusing on a thing? Or are we focusing on the process? And I, you know, I think that proves his point. How could you not see the world differently with that with that type of focus? You know, I, I think there's other um, things about, oh, how, I think one of the other things was, we, uh, I think Leroy Littlebear relates a story, um, talking about how um, Western languages, when we speak them, tend to bring up images in our head, and uh, uh, Native Americans bring up, uh, or their languages almost bring up a feeling, an actual kinesthetic feeling, I think is the term he used in the body. He said, so if, if I, he was relating what another um, elder had told him about, if, if I say I'm going to ride a horse, if I say it in English, I get a picture in my head and, of me riding a horse. If I say it in Blackfoot, I, you know, basically saying I feel like I'm riding the horse. Mm-hmm. I get a feeling, an actual feeling in my body riding the horse, and, and, you know, Dan Alpert makes the point that, that that, in effect, more closely reflects the nature of reality, if you're, you know, as opposed to seeing a picture of, of the reality. And that's very and, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And so there's, yeah, there's, there's many other, I think, differences, but I think those are, are kind of the um, main things. And I think, I think one other thing, too, which is not necessarily... Maybe the language per se, but just just the way of looking at the world is. You know, Leroy Little Bear also talks about how you know English is based sort of um, on logic and, and scientific thinking in a way, and, and we go with the more depth in that in the movie. But you know, um, as a Westerner, um, as Westerners, we we look at things in dichotomy. So everything is good, bad, black, white, day, night. Um, there's, there's gotta be an opposite, um, you know, for everything. And, and I think it, his point is that in, in Native America, everything is maybe seen more of on a, on a spectrum or it's all part of one thing. There's no, there doesn't necessarily have to be opposition in everything that things, you know, are all ultimately related as you know, talk about all my relatives, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And it's a different, again, this is a different way. Uh, you know, especially me coming from Western tradition of, of looking at things. And I think we talked about it yesterday, you know, just in very simple uh, 
example is I go out in my backyard and I see something growing over in the corner, and I might say that's a weed, but somebody else might say, you know what, that's a medicinal plant. I can use that to you know, cure whatever. Mm-hmm. So I think a lot of it is just, you know, it, it's, uh, uh, again, this is another example of how we look at the world and how we process the world. And it's true when you're saying, you know, that the language is in one, you, you, you are seeing pictures. It's almost like watching a movie as, as the other one is being the movie. In other words, yeah. one is using the language, using reality, and one is living the reality. And uh, it t- makes a big difference when, when that is, because if you're using reality, then everything becomes a make-believe, so to speak, and the reality is not really happening to you, except in the, the, the physical, the, the, uh, the physicality. And so we, we tend to uh, sense life through our, our instincts, rather than using the intuition. In other words, what I'm saying, Anthony, is, is if someone is looking at the sun, and for instance, we see it for face value, what it is and what it does to us scientifically, it brings heat and all these things. But you have thinkers of the native languages that state that the language is, is that instead of just looking at the sun, the obvious, we are looking at what is behind the sun on the other side of the sun. So the language is expanding as we speak because it's, it's verb. In Lakota, some say the language is 97 to 98 percent verb. And it's always action, stating that everything seems is alive to us because it's all in motion. Even those things that we see as a chair sitting here, it's not that we see in, in English. It, it's a chair. It's an object. And it's not moving. It has no such thing as consciousness. But in the native languages, it's chairing. It's moving inside the yeah. molecules, electrons. Everything is moving. So nothing is still to us. Everything is just energy to us. But the, the, the uh, connections between that worldview of Native Americans and theories of quantum physics and consciousness, now it's the consciousness, how we are approaching, even looking at these Native American languages as valid within the Western world. Is that possible? Do you think that is ever possible to encompass or include or even squeeze into a very narrow way of thinking in, in the Western world? Well, I, I, I do. I, I, I think it can. And I mean, that's, that's almost, that's sort of the point of the movie. It's just, it's, it's, a, it's a process of how do you, I mean, obviously Native Americans understand this at a level, especially the people who are attending these conferences and, and, and the people who come to the conferences from outside who begin to understand what's going on. But, um, you know, it's just a matter of, of convincing, you know, a broader, um, range of scientists and people of, of Western persuasion that there is some value here. And I'm not saying that's easy, but uh, again, the people uh, represented in the movie, um, theoretical physicists, Fred Allen, well, people who have come to this and participated and been part of it see the value. It's just a matter of whether people want to take the time and whether they want to set their biases aside. And David Pete talks about that. You know, he, he, um, he was the one who's taken time to, to explore uh, native languages and physics and things. And, you know, he talks about the resistance from the Western physicists at the first, um, at the first meeting and in subsequent meeting. And I, I think you alluded to it before. There's this bias that it's, oh, this is a bunch of people with a story, you know, and it's not real science and it's not Western science, so it can't be valid. 
And I think one of the underlying themes to this is that, you know, is that science, Western science, is, is just one part of a larger fabric. It is one way to look at the world. You can look, you can look at everything in the world through a scientific lens, and that's fine. But it doesn't explain everything. It doesn't, you know, necessarily explain the nature of reality or consciousness or anything. And um, by taking the time to look at these other alternative ways of looking at the world, you begin to build a, you know, a, a, a whole cloth out of it. With all these strands from, you know, different backgrounds and stuff. And I think you come out with a more uh, fully rounded view of how things work and, and, and additional tools for, for maybe attacking a problem from a different way. I, I wonder, you know, um, there was this, I never got to interview this person, but there was a, um, I believe, a Navajo man, and I'm blanking on his name, but who, who worked at Los Alamos National Laboratories as a physicist. And um, I've always uh, been intrigued. I've never been able to track him down, but I've always been, you know, wondered how, uh, how does that work? What did he bring to something as highly technical and highly scientific as that from his background? And uh, I, I think, you know, I think um, until um, uh, people like that are represented in the movie get a chance to be out in the world, get a chance to express their ideas to a larger audience, get a chance to actually they work with Western physicists on a on a one to one basis or on a daily basis. Um, you know, I don't, I don't, I who knows what could happen at that point. But uh, I mean, I think the, the barrier, unfortunately, still may be. Language. I don't know, you know, for instance, how many physicists are going to take time to learn Hopi. <laughs> mm-hmm. But, but I think again, I think it's worthwhile. I mean, uh, you know, there. What? When? When do you? You know, when do you want to stop learning about life? You know, if you if you had another avenue to to, to pursue to find out more about the world we live in, why would you not do that? Yeah, yeah, I do hear you, and I'm thinking once you mentioned that the relationship that, or the understanding of a relationship that binds us together by natural forces, obviously, and all forms of life have been very fundamental in the, in, in the ability of, in this case, indigenous peoples to have lived this way for millennia in, in spiritual and physical harmony with the land. And I think, as you see clearly, that modern science has taken us away and disconnected from the land. And in a way, it, it, it says that it's rationalizing that we are going back to the land. Well, it seemed like that's the logic of it, to destroy our very base that we see as primitive, but yet to come back to it because we can't get away from the natural clarity that we do have with the land. And it's clear that First Peoples are offering this perspective and this, the language of spirituality, can, I think, can help us work toward that solution even now at this time of even environmental crisis. And uh, there, there's a few books out there that I know of, um, authors, native authors that are, that uh, Leroy Little Bear even has parts in it, uh, such as Native Science is one. I'm pr- pretty sure you're familiar with that, the natural laws, yeah. laws of interdependence. And so it's new to the Western world, but to Native people, we've been kind of waiting for this to happen. The language, especially the language, how we view it, how we see it, how we feel it, as you, as you would say, is so true. The Lakota is not an emotional language. It's feeling language. 
And the, the emotions come because we're not feeling correctly. And, and so the, the mind tries to figure it out. And, and of course, we have subjective words, emotion, emotive words in, in English, such as love and hatred and anger and all those things. And they're consequential most of the time. So I think about, okay, if you, we went back and felt the language, we would freely and truly feel the person who is next to us through intuitive uh, values. And that's what we feel more with, with Mother Earth and what, what is around us. In other words, like a heart-think language. And, and I think that's what it is because you know that animals or that tree or those, those things that we deem as alive also have consciousness in, in the languages that we speak. And that, so therefore, everything has consciousness. It's just that in the Western world, we think that because a desk or a chair is, is dead and doesn't breathe and doesn't have, a, you know, doesn't think and doesn't feel like we do as humans, we, we tend to humanize everything or either as uh, intelligent because it thinks and it feels and has consciousness. And, and when it doesn't, it's dead. So again, your, your duality of, you know, black and white is there again. But if you go beyond that and include that chair is in the vicinity of your consciousness, therefore that chair also has consciousness. You see it as a, something created to care for you. In other words, if you go sit down in that chair, that chair is caring for you. Therefore, it has a consciousness. Do you see where I'm going with this? Yeah, yeah. And I, I don't know if I'm, I mean, one of the things that, that I talked about with Dan was, for instance, is how uh, when Native Americans look at, you know, they don't look at, at them as objects, but what we would look at is an object like a chair it's, it's you look at it more again as also as a as a function okay so the chair in one instance is something that i'm able to rest myself on or support myself with while i eat for instance or whatever in the next it, then it, next minute it could be used as a ladder to get something off a high shelf right or somebody broke into my house it could be used as a weapon you know, so it's not, so it's not when we say chair in English, we pretty much know what we're talking about. It's this thing that sits there, but it's, uh, in, in Native America, it's, uh, this, all these things have a process. They're all, it can be one thing at one time and something else. And it's, again, getting back to this dynamic, fluid way of looking at the world. So, you know, from a Western perspective, I look at this thing that, you know, this bulky object that sits there, but... Maybe from your perspective, it's something that serves a variety of functions in my world. And in that way, too, I think that sort of gets to what you're talking about is in, in that it's, it's sort of a living object in that way because it is, it is changeable. It, it serves different purposes and, and that kind of thing. So I don't know if that's getting exactly to what you're talking mm -hmm. about, but that was one of the examples that you know, Dan had talked to me about. And, and uh, again, so not much, you know, not... So much everything's black and white, but there's a whole range of things that mm -hmm. everything serves a purpose for. Anthony De La Flora, you know, you've, you've had, a, a, I, I would say, some experts. And, uh, and in this pro program of First Voices, I, I try to stay away from experts. But in this case, they're, <laughs> they're the combination of, of Native people. Uh, unexpectedly, uh, these physicists, they were surprised that Native folks spoke the language that they were speaking in the math, so to speak, but that even, right. even, even the language goes a little bit more inclusive than the math that they were given to express uh, life or the formula of equality or relativity in. David Peet, who is of Liverpool University and uh, who led 
to an encounter with the physicist David Bohm, whom Einstein described as a spiritual son. Tell us a little bit about that. What 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 does he mean, a spiritual son? Yeah, Dave. Well, from what I know about David, I've done a little research, and it's been a while. But he was, you know, he he took off from where Einstein left off, and was again a theoretical physicist. But his um, he in his later years really focused on consciousness and what what was consciousness and how, you know, could, could science help explain that as opposed to, you know, what makes atoms work and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I think, and, and in the course of that, he became um, good friends with Krishnamurti, the, the Indian mystic and philosopher. And they had many dialogues together, which some I think you can still see on YouTube um, at this point. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so, you know, he, he always... Um, tried to incorporate this other, I guess, non-scientific view into his thinking, because I think instinctively he knew that there was more than just mathematical equations and things on, uh, to explain how, you know, what consciousness was and how it worked. So um, I, I think I think Krishnamurti was the start of it. I think, uh, I think the meeting, you know, his... His meeting in 1992 with the elders was sort of the culmination of everything he did because they were, of course, talking about um, spirituality and energies and things. And, and, I, and I think from the description of David Bohm, it's sort of like he finally felt that he had found home. You know, you mentioned before that uh, David Bohm had tried to uh, start a, you know, create a verb-based language which he did completely unaware of what was going on in, in Native America. And it didn't quite work uh, the way he had intended, but then he shows up at the conference and he hears, uh, he hears these elders, whether they're speaking about their cosmology or spirituality or science or whatever, but speaking exactly in this type of language he had envisioned. And um, I, I just, you know, I think, again, my impression from talking to David Pete was this, this was just... Um, a wonderful culmination of everything he had been exploring up to that point. And he died less than a year later. He was not well at that last conference. Uh, whatever, I forget what he died of, but whatever he had died of, he already was already suffering from it at that point. But he, he David Pete uh, related a story where, you know, the, the uh, um, elders there realized that he was not feeling well, and they did a ceremony to give him energy. And at one point in, in during the course of this, David Bohm got up and, and started to dance during one of the ceremonies. He started to dance. He started, he started to, to dance. Oh, wow. Okay. And, and, and David Peter, he said, he mentions that he goes, if you knew David Bohm, this was not the kind of guy who was going to get up and dance <laughs> anywhere. Right. Yeah. I mean, he, um, he was, a, he was a sober minded, rational scientist in all respects. And, very conservative. This this was not something he would have done. And he was so infused with energy and and I think the joy of this discovery that he got up and participated in, in the dancing with the rest of the group there. I, I don't know if that answers your question exactly, but I think it's all part of that. That he here was a, here was a guy who was open minded enough to to walk into this situation, learn what he could do, and came out a different person. Yeah.
yeah, yeah. it's really interesting to uh, Anthony Delaflora that you know the people uh, that you talk about have studied these these topics before and uh, they approached everything coming into this conference as scientists and in free thinkers I would say some have even like David Pete have, have brought in synchronicity and creativity and chaos theory and quantum theory and also the Native American universe. Uh, you have Fred Allen Wolf, who is a physicist and writer at uh, UCLA, continues throughout the world to write and conduct research in the relationship of quantum physics to consciousness. We, we have uh, achieved sciences, we have achieved religions and spiritualities that we have become so heavenly that we're no earthly good anymore. And uh, I think this is one of those thought processes and the words that come across that would bring you back down to earth to really and truly have tree roots consciousness thinking processes with and how we are treating Mother Earth. And, uh, but it's all coming back to that language of spirituality. And, and somewhere along the line, I know there's, there has to be something coming out. And this is one of them. And that we need to understand the language of spirituality. And, and of course, we're going to be talking more here in the, in the future, uh, Anthony. But right now, I just want to thank you and maybe have a final word here. Well, I, I just wanted to pick up on what you said. Um, Glenn Perry, who runs Seed Institute, you know, uh, some props to him because he he's the one in charge of inviting this group of people. I was very conscious, too, of not making it sound like something new agey because that's been done to death. And, it, and I don't know that it, who, who can say what its effectiveness was. But the fact that we had hard scientists, real physicists saying, yes, there is a correlation, there is a connection, there is a validity to this. To me, again, at least as a Westerner, that, that gives a tremendous validation to what's going on, um, you know, it, it, what, I'm, what I'm trying to say here. And I didn't want to diminish it by bringing, you know, bringing, let's say, a lot of non-scientists into the discussion to sort of say, yeah, this is really great. It, it's, you know, there's these connections. We don't really understand them, but, yeah. <laughs> you know, um, but they're there. But I, I, I thought... You know, I thought in this case, I, I wanted to let these people speak, um, and I, I think that's what I do best. In them. It's, it's like I, I don't take any position necessarily on what they're talking about, but that, that's the whole point of the dialogue is to hear all these other voices and hear um, the perspectives of people who, especially from the Western world, have been exposed to this and now see some truth and, and validity in, in the Native American tradition. Um, and again, I think as you talked about at the beginning of the show, this is this is important. Even, you know, I I, I sort of, uh, you know, you, I think you had said that even Native people sometimes feel small and insignificant, and that they don't have any relevance to the modern world and their traditions serve no purpose. Really, well, again, I think if I think if anything was clear, was that the opposite is true. That that there is uh, a vast wealth of knowledge that is important and relevant to what's going on today from Native America. And if you took no other message out of it than that, then that's great. But I hope I hope the questions, uh, there's more questions in this thing, I think, than answers, but I hope the questions keep people interested, uh, get them to look further into the subject, uh, explore it. I do think it's going to, going to spawn another conference because there are much more, that many more people interested in using or trying to or figuring out an, another way, not a new way, because this, this is, people are always going into the new 
a newness of something and possibility of something. And that's sort of a Western goal-oriented way of looking at it. But if the if that way is already going ongoing, then there's not a new way. There is the way that is going on, and it happens to be the languages and understanding that has been here for millennia beyond millennia. And that is the native way of thinking and, and feeling. And I think originally we all thought that way at one time in our history of humanity. And But I, I, it's been an honor talking to you, um, Anthony Della Flora, who is a producer of The Language of Spirituality. Of course, we're going to be speaking again in the future sometime. This has been really fun. Thank you for uh, uh, for having me on today. I really enjoyed talking about this. And um, I, I hope people find some value in the, in the premise of, of all this. Um, I think they will. All right. Thank you so much, uh, Anthony Della Flora, who's a producer of the language of spirituality. My name is Tiox and Ghost Horse. <laughs> Thank you.
right, the name of that one, I'm going to try to pronounce this name correctly, in the Yupik language out of Greenland, a release of 2023 by U-U-M-M-A-N-N-A-R-I-M-I-U-A-Q-Q-A-T. You can try it. The name of the song was Takut Savat Angus Salagu, featuring Haydenen Gwak Jensen. And I want to thank you for joining us here on First Voices Radio. We'll see you next time. My name is Teokasin Ghost Horse. Mm-hmm.